Hey Siri, subscribe to the Crisis Intervention Team podcast. Just to confirm, would you like to subscribe to the podcast Crisis Intervention Team? Sit minute. Ask a doc, ask a cop by Crisis Intervention Team Incorporated. Oh yeah. Good afternoon, everybody. Hope everybody enjoyed their holidays. Haven't seen you guys in a while. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the motivations of serial killers. What makes them do the things that they do? Um, a couple of disclaimers. If you attended the, the last one of these that I did, um, just because of the graphic nature of what we're going to be talking about, if that kind of stuff uh, disturbs you, this might not be the presentation for you, uh, but it can get pretty graphic in detail when we're talking about the murders and the crime scenes and stuff like that. Um, the other disclaimer would be that I sometimes use profanity. I'll try to limit that, but it does slip out. And the other thing that I would ask of you guys is uh, there'll be a time for questions at the end, but please don't let that stop you from uh, asking questions anytime. If you guys have a question, please just interrupt me or raise your hand and we'll get to your question. Um, just ask it whenever you guys want. So as I said, we're going to be talking mostly about the motivations of serial killers. There's several recognized motivations and we're going to get really specific into those. The other thing that we're going to kind of cover briefly is how people become serial killers. You know, what makes them become a serial killer instead of sort of a normal human being. And that's going to be much more broad and we're going to cover that pretty quickly. Uh, and then we're going to get into the, um, the serial killers themselves. So I have here another serial killer collage, much like last time. <clears throat> so what, what I'd ask, what I implore you guys to do is I'm going to give you a brief, brief synopsis on each of these people, talk a little about their crimes and their lives. And what I'd like for you guys to do is start thinking about what could have motivated these people to do what they did as I'm talking about it. And we're just going to kind of get the gears turning on that stuff. Um, then we're going to switch back into what makes a serial killer, and then we'll get back into motives. And then we'll actually have a, a chance to come back at the end of the presentation and kind of assign these people uh, some of the recognized motives. So again, as I'm talking about it, just kind of get those gears turning. Think about what could have possibly driven these people to commit the crimes that they did. So this first guy in the upper left corner, his name was, he was born Richard David Falco. He was adopted at birth and that immediately got changed to David Richard Berkowitz. Uh, he was adopted by the Berkowitz family uh, after, immediately after birth. Um, for a couple of years in the 70s, uh, David terrorized the city of New York, uh, Yonkers, uh, Queens. Uh, he was known as the 44 Magnum Killer. He shot and killed six people and wounded eight others, some grievously, and they've never recovered. Uh, and he used a 44 caliber handgun to commit these crimes, to commit these murders and, and aggravated assaults and batteries. Um, like I said, he was active for a little more than a year uh, before the police finally tracked him down. He, uh, he left, at one of the crime scenes, he left a letter uh, kind of taunting the police. And he signed that letter, the Son of Sam. And that's probably guys, how you guys have heard of it, the Son, son of Sam killer. Now, David's kind of an interesting case because he's still in jail and he does, he does quite a bit of interviews. So there's a lot of media file on him. Uh, so of course, like someone like me who's interested in that sort of thing, I watch all of, all of the media that involves David. And you know, lately he's become kind of hyper-religious, um, which isn't so interesting to me from this point of view. But one of the other things that's interesting about him is he has a very clear recollection of what was going on, kind of an introspection of what was going on inside of his head at the time of his crimes. And he'll tell you that, you know, he had started hearing voices. He had started experiencing stuff that ended up not being real. Um, and there's kind of a, an urban legend that says the reason he called himself the son of Sam was because his neighbors was named Sam. And that neighbor's dog was the one telling him to commit these crimes. That's kind of what the media reported at the time. If you're familiar with the case, you may have heard that. But from David's own words... He said that he had gotten into a satanic cult or satanic uh, people that believe in Satan. And there's a Druidic god called Samhain. 
Uh, and he believed in that God, and he believed that God was communicating through him, telling him to kill all these people. And that's why he's the son of Sam. It's actually the Seth, son of Samhain, this Druidic God or Druidic Lord. Um, so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty good information when you hear him talk about these crimes years later, because he will never talk about the murders themselves. And in fact, the only language he uses to describe it is he'll say, back when I committed those crimes, he doesn't, doesn't use words like murder. He doesn't describe them in detail. And that's kind of emotionally distancing language. And if you guys notice that, that could be a clue about their motives. Because we all know that there are some serial killers that have absolutely no problem describing their murders in great detail. In fact, they probably relish it sometimes, you know, reliving it. But Sam, or David, has kind of shied away from that. And he uses this emotionally distanced languaging. So keep that in mind when you hear someone talking about that. That may be a clue to help you determine their motives. So this next person, this, uh, this handsome lady here in the middle, uh, her name is Belle Gunnis. She's a Norwegian-American immigrant, uh, immigrant to the country in the early 20th century. Uh, everyone describes her as a very physically imposing woman. She was six feet tall, 200 pounds, uh, and apparently to all the testimony was a physically strong and capable woman. During her life, she had about 13 suitors and or husbands and 25 children pass through uh, her where she was living at. Out of those, only one child is known to have survived, uh, and she's suspected of killing all the rest of them. Um, she opened up an ad. I guess this was back before Craigslist, but it was uh, kind of a Craigslist ad, and she wanted a suitor. So she said she was an available, you know, lady, and she like a male suitor. And so people, male suitors, started responding to this uh, this newspaper ad, and they'd come from all over the country to, to to see if this was something they wanted. And she usually would correspond with them a little before they came, like, "Hey, bring money." You know, today's equivalent would be like, "I just need your credit card." So they'd bring money, and they'd come down here, and then they'd disappear, and no one would ever see them again. And families and loved ones would keep contacting her, and she would be like, "You know, I don't, I don't know, I haven't seen them. They never made it here. Whatever the story was." So more and more people started to disappear from her life, and of course the authorities started getting suspicious. So right near the end uh, of what we know about her, uh, there was a fire at her house. And after the authorities put out the fire and they investigated, they found the body of three of her children and then a decapitated female body uh, that I guess was supposed to be her. Uh, what the coroner concluded, however, was that that female decapitated body was only about five foot five. And all records indicate that uh, Miss Gunnis was, was six feet or over. So a lot of people think that she faked her death as the authorities uh, closed in. Um, but she was never seen or heard from again. Um, she was never caught. She was never tried for her crimes. Uh, they, after they found those bodies, they started digging up portions of her garden and her pig farm. And that's when they uncovered like 40 bodies, including children, uh, most of which had been poisoned or beaten to death and buried or fed to her pigs. Um, and there's been, you know, stories that are saying a couple years later, she was seen in, in Fort Worth, Texas and Missouri and all these stuff. And even recently, they have actually dug up that body that was supposedly hers from the fire, and they tried to DNA test it, but they didn't have a good comparison sample from her. So they're trying to track down relatives of her to see if they can compare to that, but pretty much everyone that, that's involved in this story believes that she was, that wasn't her, and she was never caught for her crimes. Um, just real quick, do you guys know what percentage of, or take a guess about what percentage of serial killers are women? Anybody have a guess? 20 percent. 20 percent? I would say it's low, much lower than 12. that. 10. 12 to 10. That's so we got 5%, we got 3%. I would say less than 5. Um, so if you're a male and you're married, this might be surprising and uh, terrifying to you. But it's about 15%, one out of six Yikes. serial killers is a woman. So just keep that in mind. Not one out of six is it women or serial killers. <laughs> right. <laughs> but why did you say for married? Is it more likely to be a married woman? It is. It, there's a lot of serial killers. Oh, in that'll be 
Yep, um, Jen, that's going to be easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, Ben, you may have mentioned this. Jen Earhart with CUC Echo. Did you say what time period this was? Yeah, it was the, it was the early uh, 20th century here in America, okay. 1900s. All right, let's move along to uh, this gentleman here on the top right. Now, this guy's name was Andre Chikatilo. Uh, he's known as the, uh, the Russian uh, Jack the Ripper or the Red Ripper. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is this expression that he has on his face here. And um, this, is, this is, could be a whole different class, but there's actually a science to studying faces, face, people's facial expressions, particularly useful when it comes to interrogating people. And, um, you know, that involves things like micro-expressions and deception leakage and manipulators and all that kind of stuff. You really learn to, to study people's faces. And one of the faces that we've studied pretty extensively is called a Duchenne smile. And what a Duchenne smile consists of is the zygomatic muscles in your jaw turn your, the, the corners of your lips up, and then the ocular muscles uh, contract, and they produce like crow's lines or crinkling at your eyes. And that is generally regarded as the standard for a genuine smile, someone who's, who's not faking it. You know, it's a, it's a genuine smile. Do you guys think that, that this man's smile qualifies as a Duchenne smile? No. Maybe my vision is bad. Oh, it looks like a Duchenne smile. <laughs> <laughs> so if you notice, his eyes are definitely crinkled and both corners of his mouth are turned upward. So if I was analyzing this person, I would say that that is in fact a genuine smile. The disturbing part is the question that was asked to him to produce this smile was, did you enjoy mutilating your oh. victims if, as they were alive? And this is the face that this man made when he was asked that question. So not, very, uh, not a very nice guy, turns out. <laughs> so he, he killed 56 people in the former Soviet Union. It, now it's parts of uh, Ukraine, uh, and a few other parts, but back then it was just all the Soviet Union where he killed uh, 53 pe people, mostly women and children. Now he lived with being impotent uh, his whole adult life. Um, the only time he could achieve sexual gratification was through the mutilation of people alive or dead. And he found that out slowly. Um, and then once he figured it out that he could do that by mutilating, murdering people, that became what he did to achieve sexual gratification. So speaking about face as an interrogation, if you were to get this guy in an interrogation room and to show him pictures of his victims, you might see signs of sexual desire on his face. You know, dilated pupils, the parting of the lips, the breathing through the mouth. And even if someone like that is saying, no, this disgusts me, but you see those signs, it's a good indication that he actually you know, is lying to you. Uh, but Andre was eventually caught. Uh, it still remains one of either Russia or the Soviet Union's largest police investigations. He was known to target uh, train stops uh, in the rural parts of the Soviet Union. So they actually mobilized close to 1,200 officers to all, all kinds of undercover officers to just stake out train stops to finally catch this guy. And they caught him and he had a trial or whatever the Soviet Union version of that was. And then he was executed, uh, you know, like four hours after they caught him and his trial. So uh, that's how business is done in the former Soviet Union, but uh, did not survive that. So that's Andre Chikatilo. Uh, this guy in the bottom left here is named Herbert Mullen. Now, Herbert's birthday just happens to fall on the anniversary of a large uh, San Francisco earthquake in 1908. Um, a fact which he found particularly telling later in his life. Now, he had a pretty normal childhood, but then about 25, he started hearing voices, and he started getting messages from people that he couldn't see. And these messages were telling him that there was going to be a new earthquake, and the only way that he could keep that from happening was through this, the sacrifice of human beings. And he started to believe that until this point, the early 70s, that the Vietnam had produced enough casualties to keep that earthquake from happening. But as the Vietnam War kind of wound down in the early 70s, he took it upon himself to mean that he had to start killing people to prevent this earthquake, and he was getting those messages uh, in his head. Uh, so that's basically what he did. Around 26, 27, he started a random killing spree. Um, in, it lasted a, 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 almost a year, not quite, 
and he chose a bunch of different methods. He beat a homeless guy to death with a baseball bat. He stabbed a hitchhiker. He strangled a hitchhiker. He shot a guy with a rifle that was just mowing his lawn. And he just kept getting these voices in his head that he needed to do this to prevent this earthquake. And he didn't think it was a coincidence that he was born on the same day that an earthquake had happened. Um, so he ended up killing 13 people, uh, was caught and is still in jail today. Um, but I guess he doesn't do interviews, doesn't do media or anything like that. I've read a couple of his writings. He's never made any kind of television uh, appearance. Um, and, and so that, that was basically Herbert Mullen's story. This guy in the middle here on the bottom, that guy's name is H.H. H. Holmes. He's uh, generally known as America's first serial killer. So he was prevalent at the time of the Chicago's World Fair, the early 20th century. Um, he was kind of a shyster, kind of a con man his whole life. Um, he did a lot of insurance fraud before he uh, graduated into murder. And at the time, in the early 1900s, medical science was just becoming uh, pretty prevalent in the U.S. and across the world. And what they needed was cadavers. They needed bodies to further medical science. So what he ended up doing was he would grave rob and then sell the, sell the cadavers. But what he later found out was you get more money if the bodies are fresher. So then he graduated into murder quickly, pretty quickly from that. So he defrauded a, a construction company and some insurance scam. And he actually built a building in, in Chicago um, that's now a post office, a, a two or three story building. And in that, he, inside the building, he made trap doors and secret passageways and airtight rooms. And they, they, now they call him, you know, H.H. H. Holmes' murder castle or his house of horrors because he really built it to kill people. And they found after he had been executed, caught and executed, they went back and investigated it. And in one, it's one airtight room. Um, they found, you know, nail marks on the inside of it where people were trying to claw their way out of there before just being suffocated to death. Uh, and he kind of did the same thing that Bell Gunnis did. He would attract female suitors, uh, and then they would just never be seen again. Uh, and, but what was happening is he was selling their corpses on the other side of the country to medical science and making some money off of that. He's, he's known to only have committed nine murders, but they suspect he probably committed over 100 uh, during the Chicago World's Fair because he did open up his house of horrors, his murder castle, as a hotel to people that were attending Chicago's World Fair in 1908 that year. And some of those people were never heard from again. So it's unclear how many people we actually murdered. Uh, nine for sure. Uh, could be as much as 100. Uh, was eventually caught uh, by a private eye, as it turned out. Family of one of the missing women uh, were not happy with the police response. So they hired a private eye who actually did the investigation, tracked this guy down. And then the police took all the credit when they arrested him. Um, so yeah, he's no longer with us. This guy in the bottom right is not Matt Tinney. Um, so this is Theodore John Kaczynski. He called himself FC or Freedom Club. The rest, the rest of the world, however, knew him as the University and Airport Bomber or Unabomber. Um, Ted is known to have sent 16 bombs, either placed or mailed bombs to people, killed three people and wounded 18 others. Now, Ted is a prodigy-level genius. Graduated high school at 15, attended Harvard at 16, graduated Harvard, went to University of Michigan, where he received his master's degree and his doctorate in mathematics. Actually made the mistake of downloading his uh, doctoral uh, thesis, uh, dissertation, and to see if I could get a better insight to him. But man, was it way out of my level. I could not understand a single word of it. it made me feel dumb. And uh, <laughs> I immediately deleted it off my computer. Uh, that was definitely a mistake. But this guy's IQ is probably around 170. Um, he, is, he was the target of the FBI's longest and most expensive investigation that spanned over two decades as they were trying to catch the Unabomber. Um, so the question for the FBI really became, how do you catch a guy who if he walked into your headquarters would still be the smartest guy in the room by a mile, right? How do you catch someone like that? And they had to get pretty inventive to do it. 
And so they kind of pioneered this science called forensic linguistics. And it turns out when we transfer our thoughts to words, either written or typed, we do so in a pretty specific pattern. The spellings we use, the words we use, the thoughts we use, the punctuation we use, all kind of forms a fingerprint uh, that, that's specific to us. So he had a manifesto and he threatened the FBI and said that if it wasn't published in the LA Times or the Washington Post, he was gonna keep bombing people. Uh, he was gonna keep sending these bombs and he was gonna bring down an airplane. And as we all know from Hollywood, FBI does not negotiate with terrorists. But in this case, um, one of the linguists that was working with the FBI said they should release it in the Post and in the, and in the, in the New York Times or wherever he wanted to release, because they were hoping that somebody would recognize Ted's writing and his thoughts and his ideas from this manifesto and turn him in. And so the, they actually did negotiate with terrorists because they said, sure, we'll print that. They did. And sure enough, Ted's brother recognized the writing style and turned him in. And Ted was living in a one-room cabin with no electricity or running water in Montana. And if it not for his brother, I don't know if we would have caught him. Um, and if it wasn't for that decision to release that manifesto, um, Ted's big, why he was so angry and why he decided to kill so many people was because he believes that technology is destroying the world. He believes that we're all a slave to technology and technology has taken away our freedom of, of will. We don't have the freedom of will any longer. So that's why he did what he did and that's why he was living the way he did. Even after he was caught, he was a hair's breadth away from walking away from the whole thing because he was so smart, he was able to figure out legal technicalities to his case. And what the FBI had to do was to get him to plead guilty. And the way they did that was they appealed to his hubris, his pride. They said, you know, Ted, if you say you're not guilty, then you didn't mean any of this. Your whole life's work is not, you didn't stand for that at all because you're saying you're not guilty. So that appealed to his pride so much that he said, fine, I'll plead guilty. I did this. I'll go to prison for what I did. I believe that strongly in it. And he's a prolific writer even now. Um, so if you guys are interested in that sort of thing, he has a couple of very interesting books that he's written and his manifesto is actually pretty interesting as well. And you can find that stuff all online for free if you wanted to read a little bit more about uh, Ted Kaczynski. All right, let's move on a little. And we're going to switch gears and we're going to explore how serial killers are created. And this was really the question that has sparked probably close to 20 years of research for me. What makes somebody become a serial killer as opposed to a doctor or a cop or, you know, whatever else the case may be? Why are some people just different? And it turns out that humans kind of are created in the same way anything else would be. Now, let's say you're building a house. You need a blueprint. And for humans, that's our genetic code. That's the instructions on how to build a human or the instructions on how to build a house. And then you have the actual building process. And for human beings, the process in which we get built in is our childhood, our environment. So if something goes wrong in either one of these aspects, it can have very drastic effects on the person that you become. You can imagine that if you're building a house and the blueprints called for something that was six feet long and it got changed to six inches, that would have catastrophic uh, uh, changes to your house. And the same goes for human beings. If you have just a tiny change in your genetics, it can have far-reaching um, effects on the, on the person you're to be. And the same with the environment. This is just from personal experience, but I think it's probably more than half environment that causes serial killers. If you look at all the cases, you know, so many of them have you know, just massive childhood trauma, either sexual, physical, physical or emotional trauma. It just seems like it's the one constant that we see all the time is that there's some problem with the environment and it, and it somehow warps these people and they become serial killers. There's all kinds of other interesting theories about why serial killers are created. There's a psychiatrist out of the University of Calcutta, India, 
and he thinks that serial killers are just the next step in the evolutionary chain. So that humans have been the alpha predators for too long on the planet, and now something else has evolved to hunt humans. Not sure that that's a real great theory, but it's one that's out there and one that some, some people uh, prescribe to. I would say that most people that study the subject are kind of in, in tune with this, this theory here, that it's, it's some combination of genetics and environment that creates... Question. Sure. Uh, do we know of any, and I might have missed this since I came in a bit late, do we know of any uh, family members of serial killers that became serial killers? This is Danny Burad, Psychiatry, UNM. That's a great question. Um, I don't think there's ever, there has been a couple of brothers and a couple of sisters that have committed serial killings together. But I don't know if there's like uh, any research that done that if multiple generations have become serial killers. Um, I know that there are certain um, psychiatric diagnoses that have a hereditary uh, uh, component to them. But I'm not sure they've ever studied, you know, like if twins both came, serial killers, twins that were separated at birth became serial killers. That'd be pretty specific. Uh, but it'd be an interesting thing. It's a good question. Thanks. So I put this up here because this is McDonald's triad. I'm sure you guys have heard this or seen this when it comes to, to serial killers. And this was initially used as a way to predict violence, not necessarily serial killers. And this is kind of three prongs. And if you had two of them, you have like a 66% chance, 66 chance of being violent when you're older. And it's animal torture, fire setting, and then bedwetting. This is kind of old information. And a lot of this has not held up in actual uh, uh, science. So I put this up here because I know it gets, it gets circulated a lot when we're talking about serial killers. Like if if your child has two or three of these, he's definitely going to be a serial killer. And that's just not true. It's not even that good at predicting people who are going to be violent. Um, I think the best predictor of violence that we have is if you've been violent in the past, uh, you're more likely to be violent in the future. But um, especially with the bedwetting thing, that has never been proven to have any correlation between you becoming a violent person or eventually a serial killer. There is some evidence about the pyromania, the fire setting, that those people, if they're obsessed with fire at a young age, um, do have a slightly better than half, like 52%, uh, become violent or serial killers. Um, but this is really old research. And if you guys see this, it's, it's slowly becoming an urban myth. Um, and you should really look at the new, newer research. So let's get into the motives about why serial killers kill. And there's, uh, there's three major motives, and then the third one is broken up into three subcategories. So we have the visionary serial killers, the mission-oriented serial killers, and the hedonistic uh, serial killers. And then hedonistic is, is broken into three components, lust, thrill, comfort. So we're going to get into these. The visionary serial killer almost always involves a psychotic break or a psychotic illness. Um, Schizophrenia is a big one, but it's not the only one. People can be psychotic for a number of different reasons, but visionary killers usually always have that component to their killings. They're usually receiving commands from, from stimulus that, not, that is not necessarily there, and it's usually either demon or God-based. Not always, but it usually includes one of those components. Sometimes it's family members' voices that have passed away or that are not there that are giving command compulsions. And as we've heard through a couple different echoes, um, command compulsions, command hallucinations, or something like that can be very powerful. It can have a very powerful effect on somebody. Um, here at APD, we have a story where a guy was traveling on a bus from the West Coast to somewhere East, and he started getting uh, command hallucinations to cut his penis off. So we did. He cut it off on a bus. Uh, they took him to UNMH. They set it back on, but he was still receiving these command hallucinations so we did it again. Um, so you bet if someone is psychotic and they're willing to cut their penis off because of these command compulsions, that they can also have an effect where they're telling people to kill people and then those people follow through with it. Uh, so these are kind of the, the hallmarks of a visionary killer, the psychotic break, the compulsions, and they're either, either usually demon or God mandated. Your mission... Yeah, sure. 
command, this is Niels Rosenbaum, uh, command compulsions, does that mean, does that imply you can have them without auditory hallucinations? Maybe they can be auditory. No, but can they not be? Yes. Well, how, like give a me visual example. hallucination? Okay. Of someone telling and you something. So you, you see them and that makes you want to, you, you, you envision killing right. this person, so you do it. Um, the mission-oriented serial killers, they're, they believe they're cleansing the world of some problem, or some demographic, some type of person. Uh, they're generally not psychotic, even though their work may seem completely out of the normal. We're not going to be able to understand it sometimes. Just uh, really sickening stuff. And they generally always target a specific demographic. And that really could be anyone. It could be you know, women, uh, homosexual people, baseball players, whatever the case may be. They have a very specific demographic that they're targeting. Uh, and that's why they're killing people because... They've got it in their mind that they, people need to be cleansed from the world, uh, and that's what they're going to do. Uh, so this comes up uh, quite a bit in serial killers. Rob Garner and CIU, would this be like an example would be like Hitler? This is a good question. I don't know. It, yeah, I mean, Hitler, obviously, I think he qualifies as a serial killer by proxy because he was ordering the, what he thought was you know, a scourge on the world as a Jewish population, but... I think he would definitely fit into the mission-oriented serial killer. Yeah? That's a good point. And then you have your hedonistic killers. These are the killers that do not consider life valuable at all. Um, they, they have no problem killing you. Killing a person is just a means to a goal to them. Uh, a lot of them kill to derive pleasure, but that is not always the case. Uh, sometimes their goal does not involve pleasure. It involves some other, some other goal of theirs. And, um, but most of them kill the derived pleasure. Uh, they do not consider life valuable. This, these are like your classic serial killers, like the Ted Bundy type, type people, uh, where human life is just a means to a goal for them, whether that be pleasure or money or whatever the case may be. And then we'll break this down a little bit, a little bit further. So the first one's lust, the lust killers. The primary goal is sex, but not necessarily sexual gratification. Um, if you've ever studied sex crimes or rape, you know that usually the sex is not about sexual gratification. It's about control. It's about power. It's about dominance. Um, so that generally is what they're looking for, not just the sexual gratification, but they really enjoy you know, being in control of people, being powerful over them. They almost always involve torture and mutilation. Um, the sex does not necessarily have to be with a person that is alive. Uh, quite a few of these people will engage in necrophilia, having sex with somebody's corpse after they kill them. Um, and almost exclusively, uh, lust killers use close contact weapons, whether that's their hands, a garrote, a knife, anything like that. You very rarely see a gun used in this type because it's just not personal enough for them, and that's what they're after. They're after how personal these, these murders can become. So you just you don't see a lot of weapon or a lot of guns used in this type of crime. You have your thrill killers, and their primary goal is not sex; it's just pain and terror. Um, they get an adrenaline rush from this, is, which is what they end up seeking. The victims are almost always strangers, and they're almost always stalked ahead of time. And then this is something that is kind of unique to them because not a lot of the other serial killers can do this, but. They can go for long periods of time without, without killing. Um, and, that, and some of the other um, motives, uh, that's just not possible. The urge to kill is so strong that they cannot wait. But thrill killers have been known to wait weeks and months and years um, to kill again. And um, again, the primary goal is pain and terror. Uh, there's a famous case, um, and we'll actually meet him a little later. But this, this guy would would strangle his victims, uh, and then he would actually revive them with CPR or attempt to just so he could kill them again. Um, and you can obviously tell from that case that his primary goal is just the terror that this person is feeling. Uh, otherwise, there's just no reason to try to resuscitate to do it again. And then you have your comfort killers. So the primary goal of a comfort killer is material gain or lifestyle, you know, just money. It could be money, it could be prestige, it could be a better lifestyle, a bigger house. 
Um, the victims are usually known. Poison is used more than 75% of the times in comfort killings, and it is prevalent among female serial killers. Uh, although women only make up about 15% of the known serial killers, they make up about 50% of the comfort killers. Uh, so a lot of them, and you know these as the Black Widow killers, who will have several different husbands or suitors and kill them for the money or the life insurance or whatever the case may be. Sure. This is Niels Rosenbaum again. Would contract killers fall into this? They absolutely would, yeah. Um, unless there's a, there's a small chance that they got into that profession just because they like the thrill of killing or something. Oh, and then they'd be a thrill killer. Right. That, that happens, but it's not too often. Um, it's a great question. Most most uh, contract killers are hedonistic comfort serial killers. Comfort. What a nice comfort. Yeah. <laughs> they make you feel comfortable. Yes. Um, so we're actually going to meet a few serial killers here in just a second. Uh, I'll show you a video, and then uh, we're going to decide as a group what the what that person's motive was. Before we do that, I kind of want to give you some tips on determining somebody's motive. Uh, and the first tip I'm going to give you is actually a video of, uh, of, of a detective um, here in Colorado Springs. He's retired now. But he is, well, I'll let him speak for himself, and then we'll talk about him afterwards. We have a question, James. Oh. I was just wondering if we could, how do you mute that? Yes. We're going to try. Can you mute the mute? So you might need to share the video, uh, do uh, share computer audio when you share the video. I don't think anybody's hearing anything. You know you Dear God. On one of the, the computers, the, either the CIT Echo or the PowerPoint, you're probably going to have to leave computer audio so that it doesn't uh, have any feedback. One more time. On the CIT Echo uh, computer, the main computer, you're probably going to have to leave computer audio on that one. Uh, right next to the microphone, there's a little arrow. And once you select that arrow, the second option from the bottom is leave computer audio. And you'll probably, you just want to do that just for the CIT echo. <laughs> All right, let's try this. The first expression around is the eyes of the windows to the soul. They are. Is that working? Alright, so course it is. Alright, you might have to turn that one off. You know you 
have somebody because you can see it in their eyes. The oldest expression around is the eyes of the windows to the soul. They are. I look at you. I do not break eye contact with you. And I'm watching the pupils in your eyes. When they go to pinpoints, boy, do I have your attention. And the only way I got there was by saying something that only the killer would know. Now he knows. I know. Big moment. It took me four or five years of trial and error before I developed a, a process of interrogation that was, that was effective for me. Everybody's different in how they approach things. I certainly was as well. I learned by mistake, by error, by not getting something I really needed or wanted. And you fine-tune it. You adjust it as you go. And then you get pretty good at it. And then it kind of doesn't matter anymore. You've got a style and you use it and you find it to be effective. And I've learned that it was effective with all kinds of different people. But the result was the same. I get a statement. Sure, I hope so. You guys all see that video? All right, so that's uh, Lieutenant Joe Kinda. He's a retired homicide detective out of Colorado Springs Police Department. Throughout his career, he was assigned 387 homicides. He solved 356 of them, 92% closure rate. Now, I don't have the skills or the expertise to diagnose people, but what I can say is that I've seen similar characteristics in antisocial people that I have seen and in Joe Kinda. Uh, and I think that way, what makes him so good at his job, and you guys may have picked up on that in that video, uh, he really is the master of emotional control. Uh, and that's something that you really need to have because one of the important aspects of determining a motive or determining why somebody did this is to put yourself in that person's shoes. And that's extremely hard because for most of us, what these people are doing is sickening, it's enraging, it makes you angry. And if you, if you can't put that emotional, I mean, if you can't put that emotion aside, you can't walk in their shoes. It's just impossible. So I think that Lieutenant Kinda here uh, was such a master at that and that allowed him to be such a good homicide detective. Uh, and I'm glad that he ended up as a cop and not uh, on the people that we're talking about today because uh, that probably would have been a nightmare for law enforcement. But uh, if it sounds like I'm spitting, uh, I definitely am. I'm a big fan of uh, Lieutenant Kinda's. Uh, just because of his ability to do this. All right, so as promised, the serial killer meet and greet. Um, after we watch the video, we're going to try to determine the motive, and I'm going to have you guys tell me what their motive is. Uh, so just a couple of clues. Uh, listen and watch. Sometimes facial features are just as important. Uh, remember when we were talking about Andre Chikatilo. Um, what the motive isn't sometimes is just as important. Um, so if used what you can to rule out as, as a clue to finding what is the motive. What you can rule out is sometimes just as important because once you rule out enough stuff, that really narrows down the scope of what their motive could be. And then again, try to be Joe Kinda. Try to attempt to experience things from the killer's point of view uh, while you're watching them. Hopefully this video works. If I were to beat somebody up, it would do nothing for me. If I knocked him down and stepped over him, that's why you see it doesn't bother me. I don't care to hurt anybody. It does nothing for me. It wants someone else. But you can never get a feeling out of it. I never got one out. It was disappointing. That's when I figured I must be crazy. Because I figured some of them should have some kind of a feeling, something. All right, so let's talk about that. The main message I think of that guy was that killing, hurting people did absolutely no emotion. So I think we can eliminate uh, quite a few of these motives just for the pure fact that he's saying that killing people does not bring them any pleasure, does not bring them anything like that. 
So what do you guys think this guy's motivation was? Yep. Yeah. So you guys, Ryan says comfort. Comfort. Ryan says motive, money, comfort, comfort, just in me. Just in me is saying that he also does this. <laughs> so that guy's name is Richard the Iceman Kuklinski. Convicted of six murders, suspected of dozens more. The contract killer for the mob. Um, no typical criminal vices, which is very unusual for him. He did not drink. He did not gamble. He did not womanize. He was married and had two kids and loved his family. Um, never strayed away. Never engaged in extramarital affairs. Very big individual. 6'5", 250. He killed with a variety of weapons and methods. Um, he... There's a lot, of, a lot of media on this guy. He did several long interviews. Uh, and in one of the interviews, he's talking that he would, in order to fulfill his contract, um, let's say somebody ordered a contract and they wanted that person to suffer. So he would tape their arms and feet together and he would tape them down inside of a cave that he knew and he would leave a camera on. And he would leave them there for a week and eventually rats would eat them to death. And he would have video of that that he would watch. And he said he, he watched the video and it really didn't bother him at all. And that's just, you know, what, what whoever was putting the contract out wanted. So that's what he did. Um, he was actually the victim of extreme childhood abuse. His older brother was actually killed by his dad um, as, a, as, a, as child abuse. Beat his older brother to death when, when Richard was six and his brother was eight. Um, so again, that's just such a common theme among serial killers is, is some sort of uh, extreme childhood abuse, whether it's sexual, physical, or emotional. Um, but he was definitely a hedonistic comfort killer. Let's meet our next serial killer. It was really Harry who paved the road to my salvation. Have you ever wanted to kill anything else? Like a person? His lessons have never failed me. Blood. Sometimes it sets my teeth on edge. I'm afraid your urge to kill is only getting stronger. We can do something to channel it. Use it for good. I don't know what made me the way I am, but whatever it was left a hollow place inside. Without the code of Harry, I'm sure I would have committed a senseless murder in my youth. Just to watch the blood flow. There are people out there who do really bad things. And the police can't catch them all. Harry was a great cop here in Miami. He taught me how to think like one. Taught me how to cover my tracks. I searched for the ones who think they beat the system. They're not hard to find. Killing a certain purpose, otherwise it's just plain murder. It's not about vengeance. About retaliation. Harry taught me that death isn't the end. It's the beginning of a chain reaction that will catch you if you're not careful. He taught me that none of us are who we appear to be on the outside, but we must maintain appearances to survive. My father taught me one thing above all others to be sure that I am. The code of Harry is satisfied. So All right, so uh, Dexter, I think his primary motivation is. He's thinking. This one's a little tricky because I think without a strong uh, paternal. So I think thrill would probably be the case if he hadn't had a strong paternal motivation. Right. So because of his because of his dad setting that code for him, he became a mission oriented serial killer instead of instead of a thrill serial killer, which I believe he would have without his dad. So this is Dexter Morgan, the Bay Harbor Butcher, 135 confirmed murders, all of them criminals. He had a strict code for his victims. They had to be bad people. Um, Dexter used exclusively close range weapon. He was also uh, experienced extreme childhood trauma. His mom was killed in front of him with a chainsaw. And uh, Dexter remains at large. So if you guys have any uh, tips, uh, you're encouraged to contact the FBI. Although some of us probably wouldn't mind uh, Dexter in our jurisdictions. 
fact, I uh, heard somebody say that they purposely mislead an investigation into Dexter if he was here. That was you. You said that was me. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, Dexter Morgan's a fictional character, but he fits uh, into what we're talking about so well that I had to add him. Uh, but yeah, I think you guys hit it right on the head. He's mission-oriented, but he definitely would have still been a serial killer and a thrill seller killer if his dad hadn't intervened at such an early age. Because um, I don't think that that would have been quelled. His desire to kill would have been quelled. I think his also besides negative and his mission-oriented is part of his dad's organization and you know, just perfection right. of the way he killed. And right. he, Right. Yeah. And he, and having a job as a criminalist in a, in a police department also helped, you know, with his getting away for it as long as he did. In this fact, is, he still remains at large. That Neil's resume. I'm confused why one sort of trumps the other. I mean, he, he initially wanted to kill because of the thrill. He still gets a thrill out of it. Right. So and he built the mission around that. Right. So the, you it, it is possible to have more than one motivation. Um, we tend to look at it as if your primary motivation, then you have secondary motivations. So I think you're absolutely right. His primary motivation still might be thrill, but because he's such a strong paternal uh, uh, player there that he became a mission oriented. I don't think that had his dad not been there, he would have just been a normal human being. <laughs> he would have just been thrill killing everybody. Uh, so we, we all owe his dad some gratitude. Thank you. This is Karen Craigley. In the book series, it was a, it was a demon. That oh, really? Really? So if the demon is giving you orders, what kind of serial killer, what kind of motive does that go? Visionary. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that about the books. All right, let's meet our next serial killer. That was one week before I murdered my mother. I said, she's got to die. And I've got to die. Or girls like that are going to die. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party, she got south, she came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that, I got, came out, I walked up to her bed, she's laying there reading a paperback. As many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk. Shit. That was her. I said, no. I said, good night. <laughs> and I knew I was going to kill her. You know? And I'm so cold and so hard. And that's the first time in 10 years I've looked at it that way. And that intensely, that honestly. It hurts. Because I'm not a lizard, I'm not from a rock.
I backed it down from giving up a thousand times. You know, I just used to get drunk and sit out in front of the sheriff's department in a parking lot across the street on one of those old concrete parking firms. I just sit there and say, No, I still can't. The clanging doors, I can still hear them. No, because they'll never open again. You know, so I, I, I uh, rationalized that to give up would be a thing. To give up would be crazy. I'd be giving away my freedom, and I don't need to. But I look back on that and wish I had earlier when I was saying those things to myself. That the people who were later dead wouldn't be. The regret that came later would have not had to be. Those people, not things, those people would still be with their families, with their loved ones. They would have their own families. If I had the courage to make that decision, Instead of painting myself into the corner. Where might you be if you've never given in to the impulse to murder? Where might I be? If my parole has been successful. Um, I believe I'd be married and have children. I'd be heading toward my first grandchildren. Alright, so no emotionally distancing language there, right? Did not hesitate at all to talk about in graphic detail his murders and he's never has been so that's a clue to motivations right there if you don't engage in any uh, emotionally distancing language that tells you something so what do you guys think as far as this man's motivations for killing you type in and he says yes no no this isn't so you guys have actually, if you saw my first presentation, you've met Edmund Kemper before, uh, but he's a hedonistic lust killer. Uh, it was mostly about the sex for him, and it was mostly about sex with victims after they had been killed. Um, he's convicted of 10 murders, including his, both his grandparents and his mom. He gained in necrophilia and ruchio. Uh, uh, that means you're, just, you're having sex with somebody in a place other than their genitals. For Edmund, it was usually having sex with somebody's skull. Um, huge guy, 6'9", 300 pounds, above average IQ. Um, he did have childhood signs of animal cruelty and pyromania. And you can obviously tell that he did not like his mom. <laughs> he, uh, he actually blames her a lot for what he became. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the case or not, but there was never any signs or I've never read about or seen any signs that he was abused as a child. She was just very domineering, uh, matriarchal presence in his life. Um, but this is another one of the, Edmund is a, another person that has had a lot of media and there's a lot of videos and there's a lot of books about him. If you guys are interested in that and he loves law enforcement, loves him. Um, so whenever the FBI goes to interview him, he is perfectly willing to be very candid with them about his crimes and he provided some really unique insights at a time when the FBI did not have a lot of that. And it's led to sort of this profiling uh, that we do now. So Edmund Kemper is a really fascinating person to study. And he describes this unquenchable desire to kill. So at the end there, when he's saying, oh, my life would have been normal if I hadn't gave into this, uh, it's pretty tough for me to believe that that's <laughs> the case. Yeah. All right, so we have one more. How did you choose who you were going to give this medication to? It's difficult for me to go back in time and think about what things were running through my mind at the time. Was it personal? No, no. I, did you get pleasure out of it? Satisfaction? No, I mean, I, I, I thought that, that people weren't suffering anymore, so in a sense, I thought I was helping Cullen suggested several times that his actions were merciful, but the evidence doesn't support it. 60-year-old Eleanor Stecker, an asthma patient, was recovering and in no pain when Cullen administered a fatal digoxin overdose. College student Michael Strenko, who suffered from an autoimmune disease, was recovering from what his parents called routine surgery to remove his spleen. My heart, it aids for my son. It bleeds for my son. We vividly remember Charles Cullen 
walking into the waiting room. He looked us right in the eye and stated how Michael was gravely ill and people don't make it. And my wife told Cullen, that's enough. You could leave now. We are haunted by the memory of Charles Cullen coming to the waiting room to get our reaction. There were people that you caused to die who were not near death and not suffering that much. You know, um, again, you know, I mean, uh, Michael here isn't to justify, you know, what I did. There is no justification. Um, I just think that the only thing I can say is that I felt overwhelmed at the time. Can you give anything? Can you give the families anything? Any explanation? for how this happened and why this happened? Uh, like I said, I, I can't. I just can say that it was more or less, you know, felt like I needed to do something. And uh, I, I did. And uh, that's not an answer to anything. So what's interesting to me about this video is the dichotomy between when you see the parents who are experiencing you know, rage, and frustration, devastation at the murder of their son, and they're, and, and they're like, why did you do this? And Cohen's just like, oh, no, it's all like I needed to do it. So it really highlights a normal emotional range from the parents and just this very stunted emotional range from, from this killer. Uh, just, just not very many emotions, and he couldn't even explain himself. Um, right? He, he just said, "You know, I felt like I needed to do it, so I did it." Um, so, what do you guys think as far as motivations go for this particular drama? Sean says, "Mission-oriented medical patients." Yeah, vision is not fun. Right. Well, the vision at the very end kind of said it. And he's just said, "I felt like I had to." Yeah. So I think you guys are getting pretty good at this. Charles Cullen, a.k.a. the Angel of Death, the demon mission-oriented um, serial killer. 35 confirmed murders, the authorities suspect over 100. He's employed as a nurse and killed using medical methods, off, often inducing a, an overdose. Um, he believed he was being merciful. Of course, when they threw evidence in his face, like this was a healthy young man, he wasn't suffering. He would just kind of say, you know, so I just did what I had to do. He also experienced childhood trauma. He first attempted suicide at the age of nine. That was once one of 12 suicide attempts throughout his life. Uh, and he was sentenced to 127 years in prison. Uh, so that's where he'll be when he dies. Uh, but good, mission-oriented. I do agree that perhaps um, he may have been being told to do this from some outside entity, and he's never led onto that fact. Uh, he's just... It, when he says, you know, I got overwhelmed, I'm thinking in my head, like, nothing seems like this guy would ever be overwhelmed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he just has that flat effect. He's just, uh, he's just a true sociopath. Um, so now we're going to go back. This is the last thing we'll do. We're going to go back and take a look at our serial killer collage and see if we can assign them motives. So, Son of Sam, David Berkowitz, what do we think as far as... Visionary. Yeah, you guys are right. Whether it was the dog or the demon Sam Haynes, somebody... Um, was telling him to do these murders, and he did them. Uh, Kessler, one of the FBI's, uh, one of the people that started the FBI's profiling, um, later said uh, that he was probably uh, paranoid schizophrenic at the time. What about uh, Bell Gunnis here? What's her motivations? Comfort. You guys on the network agree? It's probably comfort. It's a pretty easy one. Um, she was obviously just killing people for the money. She was killing people for a bigger house, more property, insurance money, um, that sort of thing. How about Smiley Face here? What was his <laughs> motivations? Yeah, thriller, right? You think thrill? Andre Chicatello. Oh, yeah, the guy in the top right, sorry. Uh, Andre Chicatello, the guy that was uh, killing people and the only way he could achieve 
sexual gratification is through the mutilation of somebody else. You guys think that's about Realist. lust? Yeah, definitely hedonistic lust. Um, and how about uh, Herbert Mullen, the guy that said he was killing people to stop an earthquake? Visionary. Visionary, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely. He was also later um, diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, and I think that was uh, part of the, you know, obviously that was part of what was going on with him. How about H.H. H. Holmes, America's first serial killer? Can I still cover You said he started by robbing graves? Yeah. So he was using it as a means for money? Yeah, absolutely. He was a comfort, hedonistic comfort killer. Um, how about Ted Kaczynski? You guys think on the network about the Unabomber. Yep. He was mission oriented. Uh, he was definitely after the people that he thought was responsible for the technical revolution. Uh, he bombed, you know, heads of airlines. He bombed uh, for people that were deforesting the areas in California. Uh, definitely a mission-oriented serial killer. Now, there is some speculation that he might not be classified as a serial killer because his main motive was somewhat political. Uh, but I think, at least in my mind, he definitely is a serial killer. Um, Who are the main terrorists? They, they label him a terrorist. Some some people do. He only killed three people. Uh, those oh, three wait. people all died wow. in the in the last uh, the last years he was active. So, yeah, he got much better at building the bombs. Uh, his, all three of the, of the people he killed were near the end of him as the bombs became more and more sophisticated. So everyone, including me, believes that if he had not been caught, he would have killed a lot of people because his bombs just kept getting more and more sophisticated as as he went on. Mm -hmm. How about questions? 